Well, Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for a, an amazing opportunity to be able to talk about who you are and what you mean to this world and how we can discover you and the riches of your glory. And as we talk about circumstantial evidence today and see its uh, amazing implications for us as Christians and our witness to the world, I just pray that your spirit would solidify these principles and truths in our heart and that, Father, we wouldn't constantly have to be looking to our notes to remember, but God, that you would impress these things on our minds that we would remember them and readily share them. So, Spirit of God, be with us today. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Guys, let me do it. Hang on, hang on. I need only one, Daniel. Have a seat. There's Samuel. Hey, Samuel. Okay. All right. So, how many of you did the reading? Raise your hands. Awesome. Maybe that's why they're late. Are they coming to join us? Wonderful. I need someone to explain, explain to me what the difference is between direct evidence and indirect evidence. Thank you so much. And don't tell me that they're spelled differently. All right. I'm not accepting that. Hosanna, what's the difference? Okay, very good. You wrote that down somewhere. Good for you. That's fine. She came prepared. Love it. Good. All right. And now what's another name for indirect evidence? Circumstantial evidence. Okay. Give me an example of uh, direct evidence. You are, does everybody have your detective caps on, by the way? I can see Brooklyn does detective. Well, it's not a detective cap, is it? Detective caps on. What is, give me an example of direct evidence. Yes. That is, not he's trying to go there. Uh, it's it's more the source. Okay. Okay. Give me an example of a. Okay. Do you know what I'm saying? Okay. He gave us some examples in the book. Yeah. Um, I was outside, and so I can tell you, I know someone outside. Okay. You All right. So know. it's kind of saying the same thing, but qualify that, and and maybe I need to help you. You are an eyewitness. Okay. You're an eyewitness of it, and so you saw it, but. The example that's given in the book is an example I'm going to have us pursue. So turn to uh, page 61. And our suspect's name today is Ron. Ron has not been a good boy. And he's been lying and even worse things. And we need to find out if Ron is guilty or not. But there was a lady who said she saw Ron. And the example of direct evidence is that she would have seen his face, build, clothes, and would be able to recognize him very easily in the lineup. But she did not. As a result, she only saw his hoodie, his stature, height, the car that he was driving. All of these, now because she, she did not get a clear view of his face and can't point him out in a lineup, now, that would have been direct evidence. Now they have to rely on indirect evidence. And as Hosanna so rightfully pointed out, circumstantial evidence or indirect evidence is not evidence that can stand alone by itself in a courtroom. Yes, we know it's Ron because the, 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 the eyewitness said that the man was five foot nine and Ron's about five foot nine. Who's going to convict Ron? 
Anybody in the jury here? Would you convict Ron? No. I no. Go ahead. They're different. Turn the page. Turn the page. You turn the page back. Yeah, you need to turn the page back. There we go. Yep, that's right. For me, this is page 61. Okay? Does anybody's, aside from Hosanna's book, look different than this? Yours does? You share with your sister. Maybe you should sit next to Samuel real closely so that you can share. Okay. All right. Uh, yes, it is a diagram on the bottom of the page, and Ron is sitting there with a bat in his hand. Now, I want you... Okay, so Ron is the build and height. Uh, we don't know anything about the hoodie yet. And she later finds out that he's driving a certain kind of car. What kind of car is it? Uh, Green. It's pronounced... Carmen Ghia. Okay, Carmen Ghia is an older type of Volkswagen, um, not a real popular kind of car. And we discovered that there were only three of them in the city. And how many of those three were green? One. Ooh. Now, it is possible that the, the assailant was not from that state or city. Maybe he was just driving through or, or maybe a distant relative or who knows. So... That's circumstantial evidence, though. And Ron, the initial suspect, just happens to drive such a vehicle. What, what's some other circumstantial evidence? Rare uh, matching boots. Okay, before we get to his um, uh, the search warrant, what other stuff did they find? Yes. Nervous during interview. Okay. Alibi. So he lied in his alibi. Is, is what you're saying, right? Okay. Okay. All right. So now they get the search warrant, and what do they find in his apartment? And right now, at this point, the evidence is really leaning towards Ron and pointing the finger at him. But a jury probably still would not convict him at that point. Why is that? There's not there's, there are uh, other reasonable uh, explanations for what's going on. Okay. All right. Let's pursue that. Reasonable explanations. Is there a possibility that another person could have done this and that Ron is innocent? Is that a possibility? Yes. Could it even be reasonable? Yes, it could be reasonable. So for that reason, a jury would not convict him. All right? It has to not only be possible, but reasonable evidence. Now, all of this that we're getting into, detectives, is because we need to apply it in all of these evidences throughout this book that we're going to be having to weigh and the uh, existence for God that we're going to talk about today. All right? Each argument standing by itself probably is not sufficient. Because it's not direct evidence, but circumstantial evidence. It, we're going to put it in that category, okay? All right, so um, you get the search warrant. When you look into his apartment, what do we find, guys? A bleach-dented bat. A bleach-dented bat. And the question then is, why would anyone bleach a bat? Right? 
he saw this cool thing on YouTube where he bleached a bat. <laughs> and what would happen? You'd be able to hit home runs from then on, right? Exactly. Okay. So another lie, like his alibi. He was also under his bed. Hidden. Okay, under his bed. So it's hidden, not out in the open like most bats would be, not displayed or in a closet. You know. All right. What else? Someone said something about boots. Rare matching boots. Rare matching boots. Matching to what? Killer who wore the same exact boots. Okay. Did, I'm trying to remember. I think the uh, witness, eyewitness said she saw the boots, right? And described them. They had like a stripe down the side or something. Okay. And they discovered they're very rare. He happened to own a pair. And what was it about the boots? Anything else? There's only 10 pairs that have been captured. Okay. Gosh. Say that one more time. They're almost as rare as his car. Okay. Yeah, and also All right. his car was found in the garage. Like the car was found in the garage. Okay, so they did find their car, right? No. Say again. I'm sorry. Oh, she's mentioning something. No, that's fine. So he had access to a house key. Spot cleaned pants. Okay. I think that we, I think we've covered about everything on that page, haven't we? So all of these things, and there's what, a dozen, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, well, nine. There's nine bits of circumstantial evidence. Any one of them standing alone would not be enough. Any two or three or four standing alone or, or by themselves would probably not be sufficient. But all of them together, you have, you have your suspects. And with each bit of circumstantial evidence, you narrow it down more and more and more until those last few bits of circumstantial evidence, no, it's beyond a reasonable doubt. Ron truly had to do it. Unless someone appeared from another dimension and he was caught on videotape, like our last week's example, right? Exactly. And so we would conclude then that Ron is guilty. Okay. All right. Now, what I want us to do is I want us to turn to page uh, 68. Turn to page 68. Now, just so that you can see the diagram, we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight bits of circumstantial evidence that points to the existence of God. Now, he doesn't touch on all of them. Um, he touches on half of them. So we're going to go through the ones that he touches on today. All right. There, one that we're not going to touch on, for example, is the aesthetic argument. That is the argument of beauty. And the question, since we're not going to talk about it, I'll just throw it out there. But the question is, how is it that we live in a universe that's based on survival of the fittest? Why would anything be beautiful? The evolutionist says, well, it aids reproduction. But the problem is that beauty is not just found in mates. It's found throughout creation. And not only that, but we, as opposed to all other creatures are drawn to beauty, not just beauty in a mate, but beauty in general. 
We can identify things that are beautiful. Um, and, and when you break it down, beauty is symmetry, and there's certain things about beauty, like in a face, that people are drawn to. Now, um, beauty in a person, though, is, as they say, it's much more than just skin deep. But we, there's something we are wired for beauty. How did evolution create this? And I say evolution create because, or natural selection create because evolutionists talk about natural selection as if it's God. Just saying. And so that's the aesthetic principle. It's beauty that's in creation and just the fact that we are drawn to beauty and we can identify beauty. And, and even more so, this would get into maybe even the anthropic principle that we're going to talk about, but we are so vastly different than the rest of all of creation. Vastly different. Not incrementally different. Vastly different than the next lower animal on the food chain, if you will. The evolutionary chain, so to speak. Okay, let's back up. Let's, let's talk about the cosmological argument. That's how you pronounce it. These are long words. We're going to talk about the cosmological argument. We're going to talk about the teleological argument. We're going to talk about the axiological argument, which is the moral argument. Um, those three, but in the, the teleological argument, we're going to talk about two, two, two elements of that. He gets into what's called the anthropic principle. So let's start off. Cosmological argument. In a nutshell, and I want you to take good notes on this, in a nutshell... What is the cosmological argument? It's a logical, two-premises, conclusion type of argument. What is that cosmological argument? It's actually written in your book, if you didn't know. What is it? Sorry, anything that begins to exist has a cause, the universe began to exist, therefore the universe must have a cause. This cause must be eternal and uncaused. God is the most reasonable explanation for such an uncaused first cause. Okay. All right. So everything that begins to exist, so it's not eternal, it begins to exist, has to have a cause. Therefore, what we're going to try and get at is the first cause, or what he says is a causeless first cause. Nothing caused God. And so when I remember watching this YouTube video and it was entitled something like absolutely or definitively disproving the existence of God. And he did it in less than 60 seconds. He, he did it in just a few seconds. He said, if God created all things, then who created God? So if something had to create God for God to exist, then there can be no God to be a first cause. But see, the very definition of God is that he's causeless and he's eternal. Okay? So, and, and I've had people throw that argument out at me. But where did God come from? What you see, that's the beauty of it. God didn't come from anywhere. God is causeless. He's timeless. Now, what defines our existence? Three things, by the way. When we're talking about the universe, we're talking about three elements. We're talking, write these down, time, space, and energy or matter. Energy and matter. 
Energy and matter are just two different forms of the same thing. You remember Einstein's theory of relativity, E equals mc squared. The E stands for energy on the one side of the equation. The M stands for mass on the other, on the other side, followed by the cosmological constant, um, which we're not going to get into. Though the cosmological constant is perhaps one of the most incredible fine-tuning aspects of this entire universe. It is so fine-tuned, and but we're not going to get into that. It's complex. I, I still try to wrap my mind around it, and I'm not a physicist, and I've not spent enough time studying it. But the cosmological constant, um, it is constant. And it is so not, it is so right on, not just a hair to the left or right. Anyway, so E, energy and mass, they're the same thing in just different states. Like water, it could be liquid, solid, gas, okay? A little different, of course, with energy and mass, but they are basically the same thing, uh, but just in different states. Now, those three things then, time, space, and matter, that's what is what we're going to call creation. God is separate from all of that. Okay? He is timeless. He has no mass. He is not a thing that can be touched. He's spirit. And even, well, I don't want to pursue this, but even space has mass to it. Okay. All right. Now, so for the, the question that we need to ask then is, what was the first cause? Now, some might say, well, our universe was seeded from another universe. I don't know if you've ever heard of something in science fiction like that. But that only begs the question. It makes us, it backs it up one more step. Okay, so where did that universe come from? Well, that universe was seeded by another universe. Okay, so where did that universe come from? Well, it was seeded by, okay, hang on, hang on. Do you understand where they're going with this? They can't answer the first question. Where did everything come from? All right? And so some things that atheists have come up with, I don't, I don't know if you have ever heard of this, quantum fluctuations of energy. Quantum meaning very, very eeny, teeny, yeah. tiny fluctuations of energy. And how many of you have ever heard of the God particle or the Boson-Higgs particle principle? And so they did an experiment in Europe in which down a long tube was energy and this particle of energy switched from energy to mass. And they called this principle the God particle. Okay, because it's unstable, but it suddenly mass appears out of nothing. But that's technically not true. It just converted from energy to mass, which really isn't a big deal. But even so, it's unstable and it lasts for a millisecond and then it event and it reverts back to energy. Now, if they could do this and make a horse appear in the room rather than just an, a particle, a subatomic particle for a millisecond, Okay, I'm going to start buying into this. But nothing like that happens. Nothing like this can happen. And so they would then say, because of these quantum fluctuations of energy, then we got a, some say it was a mass the size of an egg. Some say, no, it only needed to be the size of a period. But if you were to take all the atoms 
and get rid of the space between the electrons, protons, and neutrons and condense it so there's no space. Some would say it's about the size of an egg. Some would say a grapefruit. Some would say, nope, it's even smaller than a period on your piece of paper. The bottom line is then where did that come from? Well, it came from these quantum fluctuations. Well, where did the energy from the quantum fluctuations? And for quantum fluctuations to exist, there has to be the law of physics. Steve, we're, we're still operating in time, space, and energy or mass. Where did this stuff come from? Science has no clue. No clue. Because, and, and so they then say, just because we don't know. Do you remember the argument of the God of the gaps? As Christians, we're accused of using the God of the gaps argument. Wherever science breaks down and we just don't know, we say, well, it's because God. It's because God. It's because God. God's the reason. Well, here's why that can't work here. Because it is not that science just doesn't have an answer. What we're talking about, as far as something coming from nothing, contradicts the first law of thermodynamics. Can anyone tell me what the first law of thermodynamics is? Matter cannot be what? Anybody? Matter or energy cannot be created or destroyed. So if you blow a bomb up, whatever it blew up suddenly stops existing. And we could say, see, matter was destroyed. Well, technically it wasn't. It's just now in about a billion pieces. Some of it was converted to energy, but nothing was destroyed there, technically. All the atoms are still there, just in a different form. So matter cannot be created or destroyed. For us to even suggest that time, space, and matter or energy came out of nothing is not science. It steps out of our reality of science. To prove that, we have to step out of science. But our scientific materialist friends have said, nope, science is the only thing we can use. And because of that, they can't answer this cosmological argument. Because it is utterly impossible for something to come from nothing. Okay? Do you guys understand that? All right? By me saying that the only first cause could be God is not a God of the gaps argument. Because there's no gap in science here. Science it's not that science doesn't know. Science, by its definition, cannot answer this question because it defies science. Because matter cannot be created or destroyed. Okay? All right. Let me just... All right. Um, okay, let's look at the teleological argument. Can someone tell me what the teleological argument has to do with? And then give me an example. What's the teleological argument? So you understand cosmological argument is based in this word cosmos. 
universe. Okay? So the beginning of the universe, the first cause of all things. Everything that begins to exist has to have a cause. Okay? Now, the teleological argument. Okay? What is this about? Go ahead. Okay, I need someone to word that down into English. <laughs> Something that we can walk away with and say, yeah, that's simple. Uh-huh. It can be done. What one word comes to your mind when you think of teleological? Probably nothing because it's such a long word and maybe you've not heard of it before. But I want you to associate one word with this. Teleport. Teleport. No. Teleport? I said teleport. Okay. I said teleport. It's a six-letter word. Laura? Design. Design. Okay? Design. Someone point to something in this room that has design. Me? I have design? This has design. You know, we walked into here one day, one Sunday morning, and there it was, and I just thought, wow, God just created a, a, a beautiful podium out of nothing. That was amazing. And then Laura burst my bubble and she said, no, actually, Mike, see, this has design to it. And there was a designer and that designer was my dad. So her dad actually made this pulpit for us years and years ago, probably 15 to 20 years, 15 years ago, maybe 15 years ago. Okay. Now, this has design and because it has design, would anyone disagree with the conclusion that it has a designer? Okay. Um, that acoustic guitar up there, it has a design to it. We could talk about its shape. We could talk about the very fact that there are six strings equally spaced apart and all the, well, I, I don't want to say the same length, but there are slightly different lengths and then slight, slightly different widths to give different tones. And... I could continue to describe it, and we would say, wow, that has a design. There's some symmetry to it, okay? How about Mount Rushmore, the four faces of the president? Did America wake up one morning and see those faces there and say, wow, look what the wind did? Did anybody say that? Ah, oh, oh, squ- it's the squirrel's fault. Sure. He was looking for an acorn, right? Yeah. Yeah, and then he fell into the center of the earth and hit some rocks and somehow it formed mountains. Okay. That's like pulling a squirrel out of a hat, right? Something like that. So, uh, no, it didn't happen by accident. It happened by design. And it took quite a while. I don't know all the story behind uh, Mount Rushmore. But... Forget the faces and then look at the mountain itself. Does that have design? We would have to say that is that could be explained naturally. Okay, someone didn't necessarily design it, but we 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 could go further to to show that God was a part of this. I, I don't want to do that because right now I want us to see that something like the Grand Canyon 
we would not say that that has design, even though it's beautiful. And therefore, we're not going to say it has a designer because we truly can't explain this phenomenon by natural circumstances, okay? More than likely two lakes further up north, shortly after the flood, there one the wall of the furthermost broke uh, of the lake pouring down, creating the Snake Canyon, hit the other lake, broke its border boundary. And so now we have two lakes filled with water rushing, and those two lakes, the, their water formed the Grand Canyon. That would definitely be a local flood when you have two huge lakes emptying. Now, the Grand Canyon, we would not say has design. However, we would say something like this book does. The faces on Mount Rushmore do, but Mount Rushmore itself does not. So one has clearly a designer. The other, we could say, would be produced naturally. So when we find design we have to pause and say, or that we, that we think has design, could nature have pulled this off by random chance, or did an intelligent being do this? All right? If there were, if I walked out and snow had just fallen, and I discovered 13 pine cones in my front yard, randomly distributed, would you guys say that someone did that? Or would you conclude, since it's directly under a pine tree, that the wind blew last night and knocked the pine cones down? Or a squirrel looking for an acorn knocked all the pine cones down? Okay, it could be happening naturally. There's no necessary necessary design in it, so we don't have to conclude that someone did it. However, if I walked out there and didn't find 13 random pine cones scattered about, but found all 13 in a perfect circle, equidistant from one another, all the way around the circle, I would conclude, no, there's design here, and there's no way that the wind knocked these down just like this, because the chances of that are astronomical. So I'm going to start knocking on some doors and saying, hey, who did this? Okay. All right. No, I wouldn't. I probably wouldn't worry about it. And I would say, that is a really weird thing that somebody did in my neighborhood. More power to them. Um, and so this is design. Now, within this concept of design, we have the anthropic principle. How many of you know what the word anthropos in Greek means? We get anthropology. Anybody? What does anthropos mean? Okay. Okay. Would you know what it means? Means man. Man or mankind. There's another Greek word on nair that means man, as in male. Anthropos just means man, mankind, man, woman, human race, mankind, man. The anthropic principle means that there is something in this universe, or actually many things in this universe, that together is so finely tuned, life can exist on planet Earth. We have discovered that this Earth is so finely tuned in this amazingly fine-tuned universe that it is extremely probable that Earth is the only planet in the entire universe that could possibly have life. 
because of all of the fine-tuning that's going on. The chances of life existing is so amazingly rare. All right, let's talk about some of those. In this particular book right here, The Case for the Creator, I don't necessarily recommend it. Lee Strobel, excellent book, but the only reason why I wouldn't recommend it, if you can get around this, fine, but he is an old earther. In other words, he believes that the earth is, or the universe is billions of years old. It's the only thing you need to be able to get around, and the people that he interviews would agree with him. All right, so once you understand that, you just understand where he's coming from, very interesting book. Now, there are something called force strengths in this universe. If we were to break down by one inch increments the length of this universe, if I had a measuring rod, or, or let's say I turned the length of this universe into one of those uh, radio dials that have all of those hash marks. You, have you ever turned a radio and, okay, and you turn the dial and it moves across the screen? If that radio screen were the entire length of this universe and every inch was a hash mark, on one of those hash marks to the far, far left would be the force strength of gravity. To the far right would be the force strength of the nucleus of an atom. That power that keeps the nucleus of that atom together, such that if you break that nucleus apart, where they call that fusion, that there is tremendous amounts of energy released, which if, isn't that what uh, drives the sun, Laura? Fission. Fission. I'm saying fusion, aren't I? Fission. Okay. Yeah. Isn't, doesn't that have something to do with the force strength of the, uh, in the nucleus of an atom? Okay. That is the strongest force strength in the universe that we're aware of. The weakest force strength is gravity. I'm going to put gravity over here on one of these lines, very fine line. Now get a load of this. If I turn that dial, just one hash mark to the right or to the left, all life on planet Earth dies. Gravity becomes too strong. Just one hash mark. Way over there, the entire length of the universe, every hash mark is an inch long, okay? We find the force strength of the nucleus of an atom. Is it not amazing how finely tuned gravity is? Now, gravity depends on mass, the mass of an object. So now we have to, how, if our world were bigger, gravity would be what? Greater or weaker? It would be, the, if, the, if this world were larger, it would be greater because more mass, more gravity, all right? If you were to stand on the sun and endure its heat, gravity would be huge, okay? Now, we live on a world in which it is the perfect size so that these little legs of mine is all I need to be able to withstand gravity and stand. If it were smaller, we would take giant steps, just like on the moon. Okay, that's a good way to remember gravity. The moon, you can 
make leaping bounds. But on the Earth, good luck to you on that. Okay? If you were on Jupiter, I don't know if my legs could hold me. All right? So Earth, because of gravity, the force strength of gravity, remember, just a little, just one inch to the right, one inch to the left, and I, we can't live on this Earth. We would be flattened. All right? And I, 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 just, I hope that illustration helps you understand how finely tuned the force strength of gravity is. Because just a little bit off, life does not exist on Earth. Earth is the perfect size. Too big, too small. Also, the gravity, the size of the Earth, if it were smaller, there'd be less gravity. And what would happen to our atmosphere? Think of the moon. What would happen to our atmosphere if the Earth were much smaller? Little to no atmosphere. You would suffocate. No oxygen. If it were larger, it would also, it would trap the noxious fumes that escape off into space and we would suffocate. So it's the perfect size so that those noxious fumes eventually go off into space, but enough of the good gases remain and we can breathe. All right? Um, the sun, the sun is a, I believe it's a red dwarf. There's various types of stars, large, big. Some of them give off different colors. Ours gives off, I believe it's red and blue. It's a certain size. Everything about the color of that light and everything about the size of the sun and our distance from the sun is perfect. What happens if we lived on Venus? Does anybody know anything about Venus? Could you live on Venus? Hello? You're, we're, Venus is a little closer to the sun. Could, could we live on Venus? No. All right. How about Mars? Mars is a little bit further away. Could we live on Mars? No. Not 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 like this. We would freeze. Okay. Um, how about water? The very fact that we have plentiful water, but if we had too much water, like Venus does, the water escapes into the atmosphere, but Venus is large enough so that it traps it in it, and it has a greenhouse effect. And it would cook you in a New York second. It's so hot on Venus. Um, Mercury. That's right. Good. Good. As a matter of fact, on Mercury, you would scorch to death during the day and freeze to death at night. All right. Um, think about water. Isn't it interesting that water has a freezing point and a boiling point? Water and carbon are the two most basic elements to life. And both of them are in abundance on Earth. Why is it the way water is so finely tuned that when a lake freezes, it doesn't freeze from the bottom up, but from the top down? Okay? Because the Earth is warmer, the air is colder, and so the surface will freeze. Because of that, the food on the bottom of the lake still remains and fish don't die. But if it were to freeze from the bottom up, supply would be limited, the fish would die. It's yeah. also because water is the only substance which becomes less dense when it freezes, and so the ice would always float to the top no matter there what we go. order it actually Good. frozen. So the polar ice caps aren't attached to the seafloor. They float for the most part.
unless they float on land. But the, the, the caps, the, the icebergs float. Ice cubes float because when they freeze, they act, water actually expands. Wow. That is an incredible invention. Honestly, we got created it that way. And if he didn't create it that way, life would not be able to exist. Our moon, we have a very large moon for the size of our planet. But it's not too big, it's not too small, and it's the perfect distance. What does the moon do to aid life on Earth? Okay, all right. The moon causes tides. I think it's like 60%, and the sun, I believe, creates the other 40%, if I'm not mistaken. But without the moon, the oceans would not circulate proper, properly, and they would become stagnant to the point that nothing would live in the oceans, okay, because of the moon, all right? The moon had, has to be a certain size and distance from the earth for that to happen, okay? We can keep going. It, let me give you this illustration. There is a biosphere on Mars. You leave, there's 30 dials necessary to, in that biosphere, to create a, a, a live, to, to create living conditions. Okay? They're all turned to zero. You leave Mars and come back five years later, everything is growing, and all the dials, which would be the various 30 major principles, and there's many more than that. We're, we're talking also things like the carbon cycle and the oxygen cycle and the water cycle and the uh, phosphorus cycle and so many different cycles. In, I mean, just how water evaporates, goes up, mixes with dust, creates and falls down on the ground to create rain. How else could we bring water from a large body of water to the land to produce crops? God invented rain. Amazing. The water cycle. I took, and not even including the water cycle, but 30 major dials, principles in this universe that make life on earth possible. They're all set for zero. When I come back five years later, they're all turned or tuned to that exact hash mark. And with every single one of those dials, one hash mark to the left or right, on any of them, life cannot exist in this biosphere. As a scientist, you know that. You come back and all 30 of them are turned to the exact proper hash mark. What do you conclude Okay, that someone actually came into your biosphere, knew where to turn all the dials, and turned them there. That would be your conclusion. Or I did it while I'm sleepwalking. Ooh, and I can't remember. Sounds like a good story. Did someone get killed in the process? Could we could turn this into a murder mystery? Okay. Um, wow, I'm talking like my wife now, who loves murder mysteries. Okay, all right. Uh, well, actually, here's what I believe happened. During those five years, there were so many earthquakes on Mars. Even though I've never witnessed an earthquake and our instruments have never recorded an earthquake, I'm going to conclude there still had to have been earthquakes. And the tremors of those earthquakes caused the dials to turn ever so slightly. And each one of them eventually fell on the exact right hash mark. And then, boom, life began. How about that for an explanation? 
Do you like that one? Do you like that one? No. Come on, isn't that a good... Who likes my idea? The jury's still out. Come on, guys. How else are you going to explain this aside from hers? Because, I mean, how could they get to Mars? Are you going to talk to me about Martians now? I'm just pulling your leg here. All right. But that is the most obvious answer. But evolutionists say, no, 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 no. Even though we've never witnessed earthquakes, even though our instruments have never measured them, we're going to stick to our guns. Earthquakes had to have happened. There's no other way. There's no other way. Uh, because I'm the only one with the technology to get to Mars. Sorry, earthquakes. Yeah. Mars quakes. Thank you. You caught me. Well, I should turn that into a riddle, shouldn't I? Hmm. Well, actually, earthquakes can't happen on Mars. I like that. Well, you just blew my theory apart. Man, back to the drawing board. Okay. Actually, there are many universes and all of the, Okay. The other, so how do we explain this fine tuning? Many atheists, skeptics, respond by saying, it truly is amazing that life exists on planet Earth. And it may very well be the only planet in the entire universe in which there is life. We were just lucky enough in our universe to have won the lottery. That's their explanation. We, we won the lottery. How, what? Life is here. So that's why I know we won the lottery. Isn't that just profound? So that, that would be their explanation. We just, we, it just happened. Others say, okay, I get what you're getting at here. I understand this. Let me propose a theory to you. That this universe is just one of many universes. As a matter of fact, not just many but an infinite number of universes. So, how hard is it if you have an infinite number of tries to take your six die and roll all sixes? Doesn't matter. With an infinite number of tries, you'll eventually be able to do that, theoretically. With an infinite number of tries, eventually those earthquakes would turn all those dials just to the right setting, if there's a hundred hash marks on each dial, okay? That's one chance out of 100 with all 30 of them. Eventually, an infinite number of tries and tremors of Mars quakes, excuse me, will get it right. But there's a problem with this. If there's an infinite number of universes, how did any of those universes even begin? Yeah, we're back to the cosmological argument, aren't we? Okay. So, with all of these arguments, we're going to need to propose a theory other than God to explain it. We're going to have to come up with a theory. If Ron, we truly believe Ron is innocent, then we're going to have to come up with a theory for every bit of evidence and why we found this evidence. The bat, he was cleaning his clothes, right? And when he was pouring the bleach, it spilled on his bat. He was just trying to clean his baseball uniform. Because he hit so many home runs. <laughs> then they check the coach and realize he's never hit a home run. Now he's going to have to explain. Okay. All right. So, again, you there is absolutely no evidence, though, for a multiverse. There's no evidence for it. You can't falsify it. In other words, you can't prove that it doesn't exist because there's no way to do that. Okay? All right. Um... 
So that is a combination of the anthropic principle and design. Does anything with design, like Mount Rushmore, we would say has a designer. DNA has design. It's a code, a language. We, it gives information that's vital. And the only thing that we know of that can do that is intelligent beings. So if we have a being that's outside of time, space, and matter, has, is infinitely intelligent, he would also have to be personable because he created these beings that for some reason want to know this creator. There's something in us that is driven to discover this creator. Also, did you realize that our solar system is in one of the largest galaxies in the universe, from what I understand. Is that correct, Laura? Are you aware of? I, th I think I remember reading this. One of the, the largest galaxies, but I could be wrong. I, I, I've heard that the Milky Way is one of the largest, um, and that if you were to in this galaxy, if you were to go further into the galaxy, there would be it 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 would make life unhabitable in our solar system. If it were further outside of it, there was something else that would happen and life could not exist. We are actually positioned perfectly in the Milky Way. And not only positioned perfectly for life to exist, but for us to even observe the universe. There could be so many places in the Milky Way that every, it would block our ability to see the universe and we could not discover anything beyond our solar system, except what's immediately around us. We are, position, we are perfectly positioned to discover. Just a thought. All right. Um, the moral argument. I'm going to close with this, seeing I have only a few minutes. Axiological comes from the word axiom, and axiom is a moral principle. Okay? So axiological, moral argument. What is the moral argument? What does it say? You're going to probably need to look in your notes if you don't know. So look in or your book rather. Look in your book. What? What's the big deal about the moral argument? Wait, wait. Well, you've already read it, so you just tell me what you've already read, right? Transcendent? Okay. Now, what does that mean? Objective. In other words, it's not subjective. It's not opinion. Morals are not opinions. How many of you think that the Holocaust was wrong? Raise your hand. How many of you think that the Holocaust was morally right? Yeah, right. Okay. If you were living in Germany at the time... There would probably be more hands up on that last one. I think it was morally right because Hitler was able to dupe them, okay? And justify the reason for killing the Jews. They were the cause of World War I. They were a cause for our economic downturn. They were the cause, you know, they're not even fully human. That was his arguments. And then he got, of course, he, he used evolution in order to lift up a, the Aryan race to say, this is the race that we need to preserve. The Jews are the antithesis of this, so we first need to destroy them. 
we're going to produce this world-dominating nation with a world-dominating race, the Aryan race. And so killing the Jews was justifiable. But so few people today would look on and say that the Holocaust has nothing to do with morals. It was just an opinion. Everybody has an opinion about it. Everybody, just about everybody, maybe even everybody, thinks that it's wrong. But if morals are subjective, not objective, we can't weigh in on this. It's like vanilla or chocolate ice cream. Which is the right ice cream? Oh, is that right? Okay. So morals, morals have to be. Even you, you ask, you talk to an atheist, you'll, they will eventually see your point that morals have to be objective. They can't just simply be subjective. Here, let me kill you to prove my point. Because there's, you might want to try and preserve yourself, but no one else should want to try and stop me. And if they argue the utilitarian or the majority, whatever the majority says, that's right or wrong. Well, the majority in Germany thought that killing the Jews was right. Did that make it right? No one would agree with that. All right. Now, so it's objective and it's transcendent. In other words, if there's a moral law, it's because it's given from a moral law giver. It's not something that comes from within though we all have what's called natural law, that is the law of God written on our hearts, but because we're fallen, that understanding of morals is broken, but it's not lost entirely. Cross-culturally, people understand murder's wrong, stealing's wrong, um, adultery is wrong. They understand this. Why isn't there just a regular, if it's just opinion, why don't we just constantly disagree on this? We don't. Something in us says, no, it's wrong. And that's because these are morals that are not subjective but objective. They are transcendent because God put them there. It's not because one day we woke up and humans had a moral gene. We suddenly became altruistic or unselfish. Now, a lot can be said on this topic, I realize, but... We have to say that if morals are objective, and everyone lives as if they're objective, they live that way, in class they may argue that they're subjective, but they don't go out and live their lives as if they are, because they believe that there is right and wrong in this world, and they will fight for what they think is right. Okay? So, if the, if it's objective, then why why are we moral beings? Where did that come from? Evolution has no answer. Okay? And it's not to preserve ourselves or our own clan or race. Okay? You can follow that argument and it, and it falls flat. It's because there must be a God that has a moral lawgiver that has imposed this moral code in our world and it is a part of us broken because of the fault, but it's still a part of us. So all of these things that I'm sharing with you, and I'm done here, but all of these things are cases that each and every one by themselves, strong as they may be, especially the teleological argument, the argument from design, but still by themselves, they may not prove the existence of God. But 
as a an unbiased jury listening to all of these arguments for the case for God or a creator, we would have to at the end of all of these all of this circumstantial evidence weigh in and say there is a God. There is a God. So as good detectives, when we go through this class, I want us to not just say, oh, that's circumstantial evidence, because that's what the world's going to tell you. But Perry Mason will not agree with them. Mm-hmm. Perry Mason builds his cases on lots of circumstantial evidence. After nine, ten bits of evidence, the jury concludes, case closed. It is not just possible, but reasonable that so-and-so is guilty and that no one else could have done it. All right, it is reasonable, beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay, let me close in prayer. Father, again, just continue to amaze us with how you have placed throughout this universe your fingerprints, these breadcrumbs that lead us to you. And I, I just continue to ask God, reveal yourself to us in this class, because we truly want to be able to help those who have been blinded by the deceptive talk and philosophies of our age, that we might be able to help turn the light on for them. Eventually, though, God, we know that that is in your hands because this really is not just a mind game. It's a, it's a sin issue. And I just ask you, Father, please, in whatever way possible, would you please use us to see people come to that saving relationship with Jesus Christ and be set free from the way the world thinks and help us to embrace the way you think. In Jesus' name, amen.